2: I definitely always felt like adversity is what brings us to life, but this turned up the volume on that in a pretty incredible way.
0: That's Tommy Caldwell, who's considered one of the best rock climbers in the world. When he was on a climbing expedition, he had a near-death experience where he was held hostage for six days. And he says what he endured on that mountain unlocked a completely new state of mind, one he describes as a flow state.
2: To me, that flow state in its most pure form is like this moment where it's almost like everything slows down. You feel weightless. You feel like your vision is acute. You notice detail in this incredible way. It's like in the moment where all odds are against you, suddenly it's like the clarity comes.
0: Tommy tapped into this elusive, intoxicating mental state more than 20 years ago and he's been relentlessly chasing it ever since. I'm Maya Shankar, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show that dives deep into the world of change and hopefully gets us to think differently about change in our own lives. jump in, I would love to just hear a bit more about how it is that you got into climbing.
2: I mean, I got into climbing because of my father. He was a mountain guide, pretty extraordinary human being. He was a bodybuilder in the like 80s and early 90s, like big, super macho man. He Mm -hmm. had this incredible love of adventure and he was a middle school teacher. And so he blended all those things together and used me kind of as his test subject. Like I was actually at least socially and probably mentally a uh, pretty meek um delayed child in a lot of ways. You know, I'm not good at the mental things. You know, I'm socially really shy and having a really macho dad, he's like we got to figure out ways to like toughen this kid up so that he can deal with the world. And he might have overcompensated a little bit, but <laughs>
0: I did not have a cool or adventurous childhood, so I'm curious to know what what that's like. Like, what's an example of something you would do with your dad?
2: I mean, to a lot of people, my childhood seemed pretty insane, especially back then. I mean, one example is we hiked to the Lost Arrow Spire, which is the spire that sits 2,000 feet above the valley floor. In Yosemite National Park, and we rappelled down 400 feet off the rim of Yosemite Valley with, you know, 2,000 feet of exposure below us. Wow. I did this as, like, a maybe six or seven years old. Were,
0: were you scared? Like, did this stuff come naturally to you, or was it really hard?
2: I think there were... There's a couple moments from my childhood where I remember feeling pretty scared, like this was a bit much, but those were definitely the exceptions. Like, I developed a sort of fear... Tolerance that is probably part of the reason I've been able to excel the way I do mm. now, but there's certainly been times in my life where I wonder if it's unhealthy. Like, I don't get scared when I should. Mm.
0: Wait, can you say a little more about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, the types of climbing that I do in the higher mountains, like when I go to Patagonia, for instance, there's a lot of objective hazard. Like, there's instances where you're climbing up a mountain. And, you know, some rock fall event happens and like a big rock will fall and land on a ledge 20 feet away from you. And most people get freaked out by that kind of thing. Like they have this Mm -hmm. emotional kind of adrenal reaction. And I don't have that so much. And I wonder if that's unhealthy.
0: Was this just a natural trait that you had or did you did you feel like you were building it over time as a kid?
2: I feel like for me, I was building it over time. Like there are certain climbs that I go and do, climbs where I might fall 20, 30, 50 feet at a time before I get caught from the rope. That feels incredibly terrifying at first, early on in the season, but I I get more and more used to it over time. So I think that can happen within a season or on a certain climb, but I think huh. it can also happen in a way over the length of your life. And so since I started really young doing this stuff, I, I believe that that's why I am the way I am, I guess.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting. As you were simply describing that, I felt tingles in my fingers and a pit in my stomach, <laughs> imagining being at that height. So um, sadly, yeah, I think my brain architecture is slightly different
2: from yours. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably more healthy your way. honestly. When
0: Tommy's 22, he gets invited to go on a climbing trip with three other climbers to Kyrgyzstan, this beautiful mountainous country in Central Asia. Tommy being Tommy is, of course, excited for the challenge, but the real reason he wants to go is because of another climber on the trip, Beth Rodden.
2: Yeah, that was certainly my main motivation behind the trip, I would say. <laughs> we were really, really kind of early on in our dating period at that time.
0: So this was during the, like, still wooing her stage? Is that why you were so excited to go?
2: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Okay, got it. Yeah. Um, so can you paint a little bit of a scene for me about when you first arrive in Kyrgyzstan? Like, What is it like and what climbing lies ahead of you?
2: Yeah, so we flew in, we come around this corner and we see these magnificent snow-covered peaks. Um, if you've ever been in a region like the Himalayas or something, the mountains, they're mm-hmm. just so big and so beautiful that it's surreal. I mean, it looks like you're looking at a painting. It looks completely unreal. And so those big snow covered mountains are in the background. And then these big rock spires, these incredible rock spires with perfect rock, the kind of thing that climbers dream of, were kind of in the foreground. So we flew and there was a bit of a valley kind of below all of the rock spires. And so that's where we made our base camp. And some of the people that live in the valley came and visited with us and brought us, you know, yak milk and butter and fresh baked oh, bread. And so nice. it was like, How yeah, hospitable. it was yeah, it was pretty <laughs> idealistic. Like they hadn't, they had, they had encountered climbing teams like us in the past because this is a place that people had been coming and climbing for 10 or 15 years. So we knew that we would encounter them. So we brought toys to play with the kids and bits of candy and stuff. Um, yeah, it was, it was absolutely beautiful. It's certainly sort of a a dream trip. Everything I, I kind of expected and hoped for at first.
0: Can you describe the moment when you realized that you were in danger?
2: Yeah. So it was very distinct. (laughs) Um, we had been in the Valley for five or six days, we had sort of walked around and scoped the rocks and decided that we were going to do our warm-up climb on this mountain, which is about a 2,000-foot, nearly vertical rock cliff. And then we had spent the first day climbing about halfway up that wall, so 1,000 feet up. We, you know, The style of climbing we're doing, you climb 100 or 200 feet up, and then you haul all of your equipment up, which is food, water, portal ledges. There's no horizontal places to sleep, so you set up your portal ledges. And we had this hanging camp, a thousand feet up this wall, and that was actually the night of my birthday. Um, Beth presents me with this candle. We sing Happy Birthday. It's, it's like you, there's no light pollution at all in this place because you're literally fifty miles from the nearest source of electricity, <laughs> and um, the stars are brilliant. And these, you know, the moonlight is illuminating these these snow covered peaks up valley, and it's yeah, it's a pretty incredible scene. And so we go to bed feeling like everything's great. And then at very first light the next morning, we awake to gunshots, like just startled awake to gunshots. And first we thought that it was um, just some hunters in the valley, probably. But then bullets started to hit this roof of rock that was right above us. And so we realized they were they were actually shooting at us. They were close by we had a big camera with us with a long telephoto lens. And so we pulled out that camera and we could look down to the ground, almost like looking through, you know, binoculars, and we could see these heavily armed militants on the ground. We felt very vulnerable, like we were expecting bullets to just rip through the bottom of the portal edge at any moment.
0: Wow. So in that moment, are you thinking, okay, they might have missed slightly the first with the first few shots, um, but, you know, we're going to die.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what we're worried about. There's no way to run away. I mean, it's just complete vulnerability. It's like somebody's shooting at you and you can't hide behind anything.
0: So, yeah, you're literally affixed to a vertical wall in a tent, right?
2: There, there's literally no escape route. Right. Yeah, I mean, moving oh, okay. out of the way would have been, you know, a several-hour process to, to just get up and around the corner or something.
0: Okay, so then, so you hear these gunshots. What happens next?
2: Through our telephoto camera lens, we see them sort of waving at us to come down. And we know that we have no other option. Basically, they've got these big mm. guns. They've proved that, they, that they're good shots <laughs> with these guns. And so we're like, we have to go down. So we have a discussion and we decide that John Dickey, who is the oldest member of our expedition, will go down and try and talk to them. We're just trying to be super optimistic at this point. Maybe they just want information. We don't really know. <laughs> and so John starts descending down the wall, takes him probably mm. near nearly an hour and he gets down there, and we have these two-way radios, and he had taken one of them. When he gets down there, he just he just sounds very serious. He He radios back to us, and he's like, you guys are just going to have to come down. So the other three of us just start descending down the wall, and when we get to the ground, we're confronted with a pretty scary scene, I would say. There's two heavily armed men that are wearing this combination of like army fatigues. So they look pretty scary, but their demeanor is actually pretty chill. They wait for us, we get to the ground, and and they're just kind of sitting around, not really saying that much, and and then they just kind of wave us on to follow them back to base camp.
0: A conflict had broken out in the country between the Kyrgyz army and the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. Up on the mountain, a small group of the militants had captured a Kyrgyz soldier. And when Tommy and the rest of his climbing crew were forced down the mountain, they were able to get a closer look at the soldier.
2: He just looked very stern, you know. He looked kind of scared and very stern, and he had blood all over his pants. And I think there was that one moment in there where John looked over at us, and he's like, we're hostages. I think we're hostages. And so that's kind of when it struck us.
0: The militants waste no time. They lead Tommy and Beth and the other climbers into the mountainside at gunpoint. And as they start to cross a river, a group of Kyrgyz soldiers appear at the top of the hill and start shooting at them.
2: This battle breaks out, essentially, and we hide in this bush. And Beth and myself and this Kyrgyz soldier end up in this bush together. The next thing that happened is the rebels told us one by one to run up behind this boulder. And um, the Kyrgyz soldier went first. And as soon as he got up behind the boulder, we heard these handgun shots which were different than the rifle shots and they had just shot him in the shot him in the head right there and then the rest of us had to go up and hide behind that boulder as this battle sort of erupted around us it was a full-on like war scene we we're hiding behind this boulder the boulder was getting you know bullets were ricocheting off the boulder we were behind it sitting on the dead body of this other kyrgyz soldier God. and they were shooting these these mortars across at us um I mean, we were kind of certain that we were going to die at any moment.
0: I'm I'm just imagining the juxtaposition of going from these immensely peaceful climbs in this expansive valley to absolute life-or-death insanity. Uh, What do you remember feeling?
2: Definitely running on adrenaline, totally surreal. I feel like that is not like the rest of life at all. And I think it was fear that was more intense and far different than anything I had noticed. Like, in some ways, I was used to dealing with fear because of my climbing life, but this was just way different.
0: Tommy, Beth, and their crew managed to make it out of this skirmish alive. But they're still being held captive by two militant rebels. They can't communicate with their captors because they don't speak the same language. But from what they can glean, there's an older guy who seems to be in charge, and then a teenager named Sharapov. During the day, the militants lead them around in what ultimately ends up being a big circle, looking for hiding places.
2: And we don't have any food. We had, we had to abandon all of our food, except I'd managed to shove like five or six energy bars into my pocket. So each day we would, in the evening, we would split one of those energy bars between the six of us. And that's wow. the only food we had. And we do kind of feel like we're all in it together. Like we share our food with them. They didn't just take all of our food. They shared it with us those six, you know, energy bars that we had and the demeanor became pretty friendly a a lot of the time. And then during the daylight hours, we would hide in usually just absolutely miserable hiding spots, like, you know, by rivers, under boulders. Um, It was always super cold. We were, you know, our teeth were chattering all day long, every day um, to the point where where our jaws and our mouths got really sore we'd be sitting there hiding for 14 hours of daylight or whatever, and it would feel like a week.
0: Did you ever worry that you were going to die of hypothermia? So it's not just the potential of being killed, but also you just might die from extreme conditions.
2: Yeah, no, that was definitely a a worry of ours. We were probably on the verge most of the time, and we're at a point where, where we can't really just sit through these conditions anymore. But then, weirdly, at times, I think, this is sort of a proven thing that happens is when you go through this um, severe hunger is you have these moments of like mental clarity. Like you feel like you are almost more alive than ever as you're starving to death. Your body just sort of starts to kick into this um, like survival mode. And so you mm-hmm. sort of alternate, alternate between that and then other times of just feeling really lethargic and really slow and, um, you know, really hungry. So we just traveled around like that for six nights, getting progressively weaker. And then finally, on that last night, things were pretty desperate. And so we were left on this night with just the young, scared soldier, Sherapov, and told to climb up this incredibly steep mountain. It was you know, true rock climbing, like it was kind of terrain that if you fell on, it didn't seem like you would stop, you would just continue falling until you got, you know, bouncing down the mountain until you got to the bottom. And, and um, Sharapov was really scared. Um, We were actually having to lead the way because we were climbers. Um, We would, you know, grab his hand and pull him up over rock rock steps. We would point out footholds um, for him to step on. We would sort of spot him in case he stumbled. We could catch him so he didn't just fall down the mountain. And um, so in all of our minds, like if the, if there was a time to escape, this was it.
0: So I'm curious. I mean, it seems like the very natural instinct to help others was kicking in for you, right? You're spotting this guy, you're leading the way, you're helping him were these competing feelings towards him and the situation leading to kind of bizarre behaviors in you? It's so fascinating, right, that you can build this kind of camaraderie with a person who might ultimately lead to your death if you have that kind of empathy towards their circumstance and their situation.
2: I mean, I think I think it, it felt different at different times, like at times I was like, we should outlast this, we should be good human beings as long as we can. In a way, these rebels, I didn't see them as super evil people, especially uh, Sherpov who we were with like he was just a he was younger, he was probably about my age, or maybe even younger, I think he was 18 years old at the time, he was a hired mercenary, he was obviously super frightened himself you know, like who's to say if I didn't grow up in a circumstance, I wouldn't have been right there with him. So I thought it was sort of morally wrong to try and take these guys' lives. But I think on this last night, clouds started to roll in. um, It started to rain a tiny bit. And and all of us were like, if we don't escape this scene pretty soon, we are going to succumb to hypothermia. Yeah. So as we were getting to the top of the mountain, I knew that our opportunity to push him was, was going to be gone soon. And um, Beth had been adamantly against killing somebody this whole time, but it was getting pretty dire. So I looked over her when we at her, when we were maybe 50 or a hundred feet below the top of this mountain. And I was like, do you think I should? And she didn't say anything, which to me, that meant that she thought she'd come around. Like she thought that this was probably the right thing to do. And so when he saw the the top of the mountain kind of close, he got a little bit excited. He started to sort of rush up ahead of all of us. Um, he is in Sharapov Mm. and I then started to sort of sneak up behind him. And, um, he was so focused on like staying attached to the mountain, you know, like grabbing the right handholds and stuff that he really didn't even notice me. And I ran up behind him and I just grabbed his gun strap and just tugged backwards on it, and he started to fly off the, off the mountainside. He fell about 20 feet, hit this ledge that was below us, bounced off of it like the sloping ledge, and then out of sight, just in the blackness.
0: We'll be right back with a slight change of plans. Should you send that email you wrote while you were mad? Probably not. Probiotics can't help with all of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, ritual has your back. Food choices, stress, or travel can throw off your gut health. That's where Ritual comes in. They made a three-in-one supplement called Symbiotic Plus with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. I make sure to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning, and I always appreciate that it's in a single minty capsule. Ritual prioritizes sustainably sourced ingredients and lower carbon packaging for its products, which is another reason I feel good about taking Symbiotic Plus. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slight for 25% off.
1: I've interviewed many successful people over the years. And one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders you can enter at tmobile.com/unconventionalawards that's tmobile.com/unconventionalawards see you there
0: i'm maya shankar and this is a slight change of plans tommy caldwells made the bold decision to push one of his captors off the cliff Years later, a journalist working on the story discovers that Sharapov did not actually die from the fall. But at the time, Tommy assumes he's killed Sharapov. And for Tommy, the reality of what he just did comes crashing down on him.
2: It's just like this flood of emotion is is going through me. I, like, can't believe what I've just done. I remember, like, closing my eyes incredibly tight and, like, seeing, like, weird starry visions. I mean, it was just like it's almost hard to explain. It it was just, it was just like emotionally overwhelming in a way that I've never experienced, you know, Beth was really comforting me. I mean, she, like I, like I said, I was deeply in love with this woman and she was, and I didn't know if she'd suddenly think that I was like this evil person because we hadn't really been able to talk it out what I was about to do. So she was the one was like, you, you're, you're my hero. You, we're, we're going to be okay because of you and trying to say the right things to help me in that moment.
0: The moment doesn't last long though. With one of their captors pushed off the mountain and the other one out of sight, Tommy and his team know they need to seize the moment and get out of there as quickly as possible. So they run down the mountain and find safety at a military outpost. And eventually they all make it back to the U.S. Almost immediately, Tommy's dad notices a change in him.
2: I mean, I felt like for a time I sort of receded into a ball. I didn't talk to anybody except for Beth about personal things, um, mm. but Beth and a few other close friends. I didn't talk to my parents that much about it. So I think he probably had that take more than most because he knew me a lot. And then I did, just didn't want to discuss this with him.
0: Mm. What aspect of the experience made you most uncomfortable talking about with your dad?
2: I think I was just, I, I just didn't know how to think about the experience like I didn't know for a while whether whether I you know was kind of an evil person for having done this thing or whether I was kind of a hero for saving us I was both but I'd also learned I think very few people get to find out how they will react in super intense experiences like that everybody sort of wonders and I now knew that when when things are really bad I was able to kind of like rise to the occasion and do something that was really hard for me and really fight for survival in this way that I think I was, I was a bit proud of at the time. But I didn't want to seem proud. I didn't want to feel proud in a lot of ways. Um, hmm. But I think kind of deep down, I, I was a little bit proud. Like I felt empowered.
0: Interesting. So, so did the adversity you faced in Kyrgyzstan change your understanding of yourself or actually just reinforce what you had believed all along about what you were capable of?
2: I think it it reinforced more than changed, but it also revealed a lot. It opened up a ton of curiosity. Like I wanted to learn more. I wanted to, um, in some ways, get back to that place of being in this incredibly meditative, like flow state that I felt like I had experienced at times in Kyr- Kyrgyzstan. I think, in some ways, my climbing ever since then has been an effort to almost get back there in a way and and learn more yeah almost like an addiction potentially i think i saw kyrgyzstan as this like fuel to put me on this higher plane where i could like use that adversity to fuel my life in a lot of ways and and sort of my pursuit of of my craft which continues to be climbing to this day
0: yeah, man, you are such a climber at heart. Like the the <laughs> fact that you're, you're describing Kyrgyzstan as being a flow state in which you had like, <laughs> you know, deep mental acuity and you're, I mean, that, that, that's as a lay person, right? That is a truly astonishing way of interpreting those events.
2: Yeah, well, I didn't go there first. I probably mm, <laughs> went a lot of places throughout that year. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's the place that I ended up finding uh, to be the one that suited me. But if you think hmm. about it, like, you know i can I can equate it to situations as a child where I was up on some big wall with my dad and you know surrounded by some incredible thunderstorm, and things get really real, and my dad would look at me in these kind of moments with these wild eyes and be like, "This is what brings us to life." So that was built into me from a really young age.
0: interesting, okay. yeah, I think my parents were like, "Why don't we go inside now? There's thunder. He <laughs> yeah. would prefer not to die. Um, yeah, exactly. okay, anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, can you describe more? I think for a lot of listeners they'll be curious what you mean by the this flow state that you experienced in Kyrgyzstan like what what does it feel like what were you what 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 were you trying to reach psychologically when you came back and started climbing again
2: um to me that flow state in its most pure form is like this moment where it's almost like everything slows down. You feel weightless. You feel um, like your vision is acute. You notice detail in this incredible way. It's like a physiological change that is incredibly easy to notice when it happens. You know, It's like in the moment where all odds are against you suddenly it's like the clarity comes and it's completely surreal and completely magical. I feel like I had experienced that in Kyrgyzstan. And so I was trying to get back there in climbing, but I wasn't, I wasn't finding that flow state in that way. So I did start to shift some of my climbing to like these mega endurance days where you're out, you know, sleep deprived for, you know, 50 hours in a row. And a lot of times these climbs would take four or five days and I started to do them in one day, like 24 hour pushes.
0: Okay, I, I'm pausing only because if, if I were an alien descending on this planet and I heard that there's this guy named Tommy Caldwell who went through a harrowing experience in Kyrgyzstan, who's now trying to replicate aspects <laughs> of that trip on his own volition in normal life. Um, I, think, I think the alien would bat an eye. <laughs> that's all. It's it's why I admire climbers so much. It's the relentless focus and uh, resolve. And again, I I flirted as a musician with flow, right? Um, in in my childhood, and I in my own way I crave that too. There's there's something about engaging with art, and I guess I see climbing as an art form too. That can put you in a certain mental state that's really hard to. You can't, you can't recruit it in daily life at will, right? It's not, it's one of these elusive things um, that happens when all the stars align, right? Or at least that's how it's been in my own experience.
2: Yeah, now I can tell you have like, you have the craving and the thirst for it. And yeah, I felt like I need to pursue that a lot in my life since then. But in some ways, I never got back to that place that, that I was in Kyrgyzstan, like that flow state that I experienced that really comes from this, you can really only access when, when your life really is on the line. I, even though I was pushing way harder than I was before, I wasn't, I wasn't ever f- getting back to that, to that place, to that incredible flow state.
0: Tommy spent the next year after his return from Kyrgyzstan trying to access that high, that flow state in his climbs. Whatever downtime he had, he spent with Beth in this little fixer-upper cabin they bought in the mountains of Colorado.
2: Then one day I was working on the house. I was trying to use the tools and not knowing how to use them properly. I ended up chopping off my index finger on my left hand with a table saw. So this is kind of like worst, ca- worst case scenario.
0: Can you describe the moment where you realized that your index finger is no longer on your hand?
2: I felt this numbness and I looked down at my left hand and saw that the finger was completely severed. Like I didn't know where the other part of it was. So I think I immediately panicked. I yelled to Beth. I was just like, oh, "I just cut off my finger," and um, and she came over and we found it like laying on the ground, ran into the house, put it on ice, and drove to the hospital.
0: What is going through your head on the drive to the hospital?
2: I mean, I was I was certainly panicking. Uh, I mean, I, all I could think about was climbing. Like I had gotten to this place where I was I was a professional climber. I was living kind of my ultimate life. I had all this curiosity about where I could take it. Um, it was sort of my coping mechanism for Kyrgyzstan in some ways, like this was the thing that I could focus on that could both Mm -hmm. distract me and empower me. And that was what was keeping me happy and stable in life. And then suddenly maybe that is gone too. Um, so I was panicking. I mean at first we're just we're just holding on to hope. I'd heard stories about people chopping off fingers and then reattaching them and everything being just fine. You know like finger reattachment surgery is usually a relatively successful thing at least it was in my mind the doctor came into the room and he, you know, sat Beth and me down and he's like, we've done everything we can. Your finger is dead. We're going to do one final surgery and remove it. And, you know, I'm sorry. And he, he was a climber, actually. He the, Our doctor ended up being a climber as well. And, he, and so he, along with that, he said that he told us that he's like, you should start thinking about what else you want to do in life because you're not going to, you're not going to be able to, like, be a professional climber anymore.
0: And when you first heard that, Do you agree with him? I mean, did you believe that that was going to be the case?
2: Well, I mean, I think I heard that and I was just like incredibly sad and trying to absorb that. I mean, Mm. once again, I feel like this has been a theme in my life. I have these things that are said or things that happen to me that are almost like too grand for me to comprehend in the moment. And it takes a long time to really figure it out. But he left the room and then Beth looked over at me and she's like, Fuck that guy, he has no idea what, what you're capable of. And that was like the perfect thing to say. You know, I think I came out of that hospital with like kind of this conviction that was driven partially from like this idea that I might be able to overcome, but also driven a lot by the fear that I've that I just lost this thing that was incredibly important to me. And I wanted to do everything I could. Like I might as well do everything I can at that point to try and prove him wrong.
0: Do you think your experience in Kyrgyzstan? increased your resolve to give climbing another go? Like, do you think you would have actually tried if that experience hadn't happened and you hadn't seen your limits?
2: Um, I think what it did for me is that it, it made me not fear failure in a weird way. Like <laughs> I'd had to confront the worst things that I could imagine in my life in a lot of ways. And in some ways it like wasn't so bad, you know? I mean, it was it was really bad in some ways, but in other ways I'm like, I lived through it. I, I can find strength through this and, and that drive, that drive that you can feel only in those moments is, is like this moment that you have to seize, you know, it's like you, that only lasts for so long. And so you have to capture it, absorb it and let it, let it like push you forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A big change can do that. Wow.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, what were those early first few climbing days like?
2: So I went straight to the climbing gym, I think from the hospital. Like, I don't think we went home <laughs> yet. Oh
0: my <home> gosh, <laughs> Tommy. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wow, I've been... I, I love g- that though. You're so passionate uh, about it. You couldn't yeah. wait to get back on.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'd been laying in a hospital bed for two two weeks, so I was pretty excited to move. And then the doctor had told me that since the finger was gone, I couldn't really do any more harm. And so I was really curious to see how my you know newly remodeled hand was going to work. And we went straight to the gym and it was, it was really hard at first. And I was like, okay, this is a starting point. I can, I can take this and improve on it. And then you know, I went back to the climbing gym at first, like basically every day and each day I would feel a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger. And before I knew it, I was sort of exceeding my own expectations. And that started this pretty incredible flywheel where I was like, wow, this is actually working. My strength is coming back. And within a couple of months, I actually was back at the level of climbing that I had been before I chopped off my finger. Like I went back to other climbs that I had, had as climbing project and I was able to do them again. And I was like, wow, this is working. I can't believe I'm overcoming this. This is so exciting. And then I didn't stop there. I just kept on getting better and better. And, um, you know, in some ways it was like a super magical time for me.
0: There's no manual for how to climb with nine fingers. So you're also having to relearn key form elements of climbing, right? How does that happen? Like, do you have to fully adjust your your strategy, like the way that you climb a wall?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's experimental. Climbing is always experimental. Like you're always playing with how to do moves differently. And so um, I was just doing that, but without a finger, you know, I sort of cherished that experimenting. Like my dad actually welded me up this specific finger strength, like weightlifting machine, just for your fingers though. And so I started using that a bunch and I got more and s- more scientific about building finger strength.
0: Okay. So you you decide to climb one of the most impossible rock faces I think in the world is that right I mean the dawn wall it, yeah. most people con- deemed it impossible um, and I, I want to know what was your motivation for that what were you hoping to achieve
2: yeah I mean so this was after my you know after I came back from chopping off my finger I, you know that was sort of when I kept just doing harder and harder roots and I became the person that knew more about big wall free climbing on El Capitan than any, you know, I'd spent more time up there. I'd done more routes than anybody. The Dawn Wall, it is by far the the hardest big wall free climb in the world to anybody except for me at the time, just looked like a pane of glass. Like you look up at the wall and you're like, there's nothing to hold on to. There's no way you could ever climb this thing. Um, like I said, I had spent so much time up there that I knew that sometimes these little edges formed on these faces that look totally blank from below. But this is just, it was such a big scale that piecing it together was this incredible puzzle, which um, ended up taking me a year just to figure out the route and then another like seven years to um, build the strength and everything to to pull it together. I guess I saw pushing that venue to be the one place in the world where I could really explore something that nobody else had.
0: At any point, did you experience the intensity of the Kyrgyzstan flow state when you were climbing the Don
2: Wall? I feel like I did, actually, on the final on the final go. Like, when we successfully climbed the thing... So me and my partner, Kevin Jorgensen, you know, we, we spent seven years... We would fix ropes to the wall, and we would descend up and down the ropes, and we would try all the different sections, and we would learn it all. And then when we finally went up and successfully climbed the route, I think when I climbed those pitches, it was this moment of incredible flow like sudden there was so much pressure and anxiety and excitement wrapped up in the seven years of of preparing for this that when it happened it it felt magical like that clarity emerged i felt weightless there was this incredible flow it was yeah very magical
0: Hey, thanks for listening. See you next week when I talk with Megan Phelps Roper. She grew up a devout believer in the Westboro Baptist Church, one of the most rabid hate groups in America. But then in her mid-20s, she walked away from it all.
2: It felt like this physical, like I, like I had a giant boulder sitting on my chest, and I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't see around it, and I had no vision of the future. I had no idea what my life was going to look like.
0: A Slight Change of Plans is created and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. Big thanks to everyone at Pushkin Industries, including our producer, Mo Laborde, associate producers, David Jaw and Julia Goodman, executive producers, Mia LaBelle and Justine Lang, senior editor, Jen Guerra, and sound design and mix engineers, Ben Tolliday and Jason Gambrell. Thanks also to Luis Guerra, who wrote our theme song, and Ginger Smith, who helped arrange the vocals. Incidental music from Epidemic Sound. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow a slight change of plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shankar. I have to say, I'm a little bit, I was a little bit sheepish about doing this interview because. I was like a budding concert violinist as a kid, and then when I was 15, I had a hand injury in which I tore tendons in my hand, and doctors told me that I could never play again, so my life had to take a totally different route from that point forward. But I feel like you would have been the dude to play the violin with, like, four fingers <laughs> and, like, crush it. Um, so I just feel like, yeah, didn't really step up. I was like, oh, the doctor said I can't play. I guess I won't play. Um, but anyway, some of us <laughs> nice. are tougher glad, than others. I'm
2: glad we could start the interview by me one up <laughs> you.
0: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day.
1: perfect home sweet home the tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from t-mobile for business at mobile world congress this is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places if that sounds like you and you're a t-mobile for business customer enter today if you win You'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.